I can see him as he's walking home. His head is hanging kind of low. It's been a long, frustrating day. And now he's walking home. Everywhere he went, no one was willing to hire him. In fact, by the end of the day, people weren't even willing to look him in the eye anymore. It wasn't that he didn't do good work. He was a superb, superb craftsman. He was timely. He offered good value. His family had worked in this trade for generations. They were known for it. Now, something else was going on, and he thought by the end of the day that he knew what it was. You see, last month, at a feast, something had clicked. He'd seen it coming, but when it happened, it was almost surreal. Everyone in his trade group had been asked to troop up to the front of the room and together declare Caesar as Lord and God, pinching a little bit of incense while everyone spoke the words of worship. And around the edge of the room, there were some of the local religious leaders who were really fanatical about Caesar, and they kind of hovered, watching. When his group rose to worship, he couldn't do it. He remained seated, looking down at his empty plate. Everyone else went up. Everyone else pinched the incense. Everyone spoke the words, Caesar, Domitian, Dominus et Deus, which means Caesar, Domitian, Lord and God. It only took a moment, and then the evening just went on as before. But something had changed that night. And as the weeks passed, his work started drying up. They let him complete the projects he was already involved in. But when he sought more contracts, he started hitting a wall. Suddenly... No one was hiring. Or when they were, lesser craftsmen seemed to be able to outbid him with little or no explanation, but he knew what it was. He knew what had happened. See, he was a follower of Jesus. And everyone knew that, but it was now his refusal to worship the emperor as Lord Lord and God that was now sitting at the root of his current troubles. All he would have had to do that day was pinch some incense, you see. Just say the words. He didn't have to mean them. In fact, half the guys that trooped up there didn't mean them. That's all he would have had to do, but he couldn't do it because Caesar wasn't Lord and God. Jesus was. Caesar wasn't the Savior of the world, which he claimed and proclaimed to be. Jesus was the Savior of the world. Caesar wasn't the divine Son of God. Only Jesus was. This renewed worship program of Caesar, which was now being demanded, being required, was bringing everything to a head. And he was going to suffer for his loyalty to Jesus. He knew it. He would suffer. His family would suffer. His brothers and sisters in Christ would suffer. The church would suffer. Why? Because only Jesus is worthy of worship. Only he is worthy of our devotion. And as he sat there at the end of that afternoon, he heard the question being asked. It was being asked all over. Everywhere you looked at the images, the statues, the pressure, everything was asking the question, who will you worship? 
And he could feel the weight of that question. Would we worship the emperor alongside Jesus so we could sort of get on with life? Or would we worship Jesus only and suffer the consequences of that exclusive allegiance? It really wasn't a choice. He knew that. Whatever the cost, whatever the consequences, he knew that Jesus was going to bring them through. Because only Jesus is worthy of our worship. So he got himself up. He dusted off his cloak. And he headed home. There was hope in his heart, even though he knew the days ahead were going to be dark. This was a war, after all. This is what John, in that letter he sent around, that crazy vision, that's what he was trying to tell us. He was showing us that this is a war about worship, that it was all coming down to this. Well, he thought to himself, the beast could rage and flail all he wanted. But with the Spirit in us and with Jesus leading us, he knew there were better days ahead, better days beyond the darkness. And with that in his heart, he hurried home. Today's Revelation passage is all about worship. The question who we will worship is going to be posed to us. It is posed today. Just as it was posed back then, and I would argue it's the most important question that we'll ever answer. And we answer it with our lives. We're going to launch into a chapter in Revelation that's famous for his imagery. And as you hear it read today, especially if it's a bit new to you, you might be surprised to find out that it's actually one of the easiest passages to interpret in the book of Revelation. The images are fairly transparent. The corresponding realities are fairly easy to discern. But living it out in our lives can prove to be very very difficult because it comes down to who we will worship even if our worship brings trouble into our lives and so if you will let's just pray together as we continue on in revelation 13 jesus you are worthy of worship and now as we walk through revelation 13 i pray lord jesus that you would inspire us and challenge us to worship only you to identify the ways that we are often tempted to mix in other things with our worship of you. And that we would come out from this morning's gathering more committed to exclusive loyalty to only you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, let's walk through chapter 13 together. It's on an insert in your bulletin. Uh, You may have also brought a Bible or there might even be some Bibles around in the front of your benches. But let's walk through it together. Chapter 13 continues the same fantastic vision that we already started in chapter 12, where we were introduced to this enormous red dragon who is shown to be the devil himself, whose sole aim is to destroy the people of God. At the very end of chapter 12, we're told that the dragon, who's been frustrated and is enraged at his inability to destroy Jesus and his mother, went off, I quote, to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Well, how's he going to do that? How's he going to wage this war? We heard last week that he uses three basic strategies, accusation, deception, and fear. And we saw that we overcome him, 
through the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and that we, love, we do not love our lives so much that we would shrink back from death. That's what we learned last week. And if you missed that, I do encourage you to listen to it online. If you don't have access to online, Jack can burn you a CD. But this next chapter goes on to show how the devil employs two henchmen to get his evil work of destruction done. Two henchmen designed for one purpose. To get people to worship, not Jesus, but in this case, to worship Rome. The emperor of Rome. But behind it all, to worship the prince of darkness himself, the devil. It all comes down to worship. So let's read it together. And I want you to notice as we read through it, the centrality of worship all the way through Revelation 13. Remember, as you hear this story, it's the same as we've already been introduced to in chapter 12, and it continues for one purpose. Jesus is giving us this vision to pull back the curtain. That's the image we've been using for Revelation. The meaning of the word apocalypse is not something terrible that happens, but it's the curtain being pulled back to reveal something to us. Reveal the presence of Jesus in the midst of the mess. Show us what's going on behind the scenes, as it were. And this vision pulls back the curtain so that Christians can see what is really going on behind all the pressure to compromise in order to help them be faithful to Jesus. That's why this curtain is being pulled back. So, Revelation 13. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. This is the same dragon we already saw. And then we are introduced to the two henchmen. Two beasts, and they're fashioned on two primary beasts that often represent monsters of chaos in the Old Testament. Leviathan from the sea and behemoth from the land. That's what they're based on, roughly. So the first beast. I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns. And on each head was a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Let's stop there for now. Did you hear that clue right at the end of this section? It's like saying, Christians, take note. You're going to have to endure this beast's blasphemy and violence. You need to endure and be faithful. Well, in order to make sense of this fantastic beast, right? Pretty strange stuff. Uh, let me rattle through a few things. And I respect the fact that I'm going to give you a bunch of information here. Some of you may think, wow, too much info. Some of you are going to think, not nearly enough. I have arguments. Um, some of you are going to have different, well, 
let me rattle off a few things and see if we can pull it together. The first one is that this sea beast really is the empire, or in particular, the Roman emperor himself. Everything in this story makes it clear. Uh, There have been, of course, beasts just like this through history. And so Revelation has very helpfully been applied wherever evil tyrants have risen up and demanded that people worship them. People like Stalin come to mind, and even Genghis Khan in other ways, these beasts, as it were, through history. But it's in its original context, this beast is Caesar himself, and in this case, Domitian. The beast has ten horns, seven heads, ten crowns, which are symbols of his complete and total authority. And if you've done your history, you know how powerful Rome really was. That the Roman Empire, under the Roman Emperor, wielded incredible, widespread, devastating power. And these symbols simply point to that power. The blasphemous name on each head underscores this fact. Through the decades, particularly the last number of decades prior to this letter being distributed, the Caesars had come to be worshipped as gods. Many of them didn't necessarily start it, but they were okay with it because it kept people in line. But Domitian, the current emperor, he demanded to be worshipped. He called himself Lord and God. He proclaimed himself the Savior of the world, the divine Son of God. And people were required to worship him. The image of the beast in this vision is really a hybrid of images from an ancient vision that Daniel had where kingdoms were featured as a leopard, as a bear, as a lion. And in John's vision, this Roman Empire, with the emperor himself as its leader, is kind of a horrifying hodgepodge of all the worst, evil, violent regimes in history. The beastiest of beasts, as it were. The fatal wound likely refers to a time in the late 60s when the future of the Roman Empire hung in the balance. But to everyone's surprise and amazement, it actually not only recovered, but was more powerful than ever. Why is Jesus doing this? Jesus wants these Christians to know that the dragon, the devil himself, is using the state, using the emperor, to wage his war against the church. He wants them to understand that. That behind all the persecution that they were just beginning to really experience, that behind all the pressure they were receiving, the social pressure, the pressure from their local trade guilds, the pressure from their family, the pressure from all the various temples around, all this pressure to compromise, to to mix in their worship of Jesus with the worship of other things. Behind it all stood the dragon himself. And this was his strategy to wage war against the people of God. As is pictured in this vision, everyone worshipped the beast. Everyone stood in awe of Rome and her emperor. Everyone stood there and said, who is like the beast? So the first beast represents Rome, specifically the Roman emperor. But let's move on because that's the only the first henchman of the dragon. There's one more that comes into play. And this beast, this second beast, is dedicated to the worship of Of the first beast. Here it is. Beast number two. Verse 11. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. 
And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. A number is six, six, six. Okay, beast number two. So while the first beast is the Roman emperor, the second beast is the emperor cult. You see, throughout the Roman Empire, the worship of Caesar, as I mentioned, had already had become more and more prominent. But the further you got away from the city of Rome, the further you got away from the actual place that the Caesar himself was sitting, the more fanatical and devoted became the worshippers of Caesar himself. And where these seven churches were located, you know the seven churches that are actually receiving this letter? Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, those guys. Where these seven churches are living in in what is now modern Turkey, but was the Roman province of Asia, they were quite a ways away from Rome. And they were deeply and fanatically committed to the worship of Caesar. Cities had competed over the years to build certain temples to certain Caesars. They, They built temples to the Roman goddess Roma. And they were um, now being supported by a a, a very fanatical cult of religious devotees to Caesar worship itself. And as I depicted in my opening story, the increased pressure to worship Caesar was beginning to cause significant trouble for Christians across the board. I mean, different pockets, different ways, but it was now causing increased pressure. You'll notice that beast number two is all about beast number one. That's why it speaks like the dragon. It exercises the authority of the first beast. It gets everyone to worship the first beast. That's because the emperor cult was all about the worship of Caesar. They were so devoted to it that some were known in various temples to have created elaborate deceptions, even statues that would move and, and, and speak. through. They used ventriloquism. They used all these tricks. And, and, and they even caused some miracles to occur all in order to increase the mystique and the awe of Caesar. See how this is working? Everything was about the worship. The worship of Caesar. So much so that if people refused to worship Caesar, they began to suffer for it. That's the whole idea in here around this mark, which I know has entered the psyche of uh, our culture in a variety of ways. This is not a literal mark. This is not a UPC code or a microchip. This is not what this is. This mark is, as we've already seen in Revelation, it's kind of a counterpoint to something we've already seen Jesus do with his followers. You see, early in Revelation, we saw that all true followers of Jesus had been marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. They've been sealed, not just, it was sealed for their lasting protection, even though they were going to suffer and die because of their allegiance to Jesus. They've already received their mark. This mark now is like the beastly alternative, going around and marking out everyone else who hasn't been sealed. 
people who have bowed the knee to Caesar, people who have come under the sway of the beast. Now, how does this help? How does this image of those who've been marked and those who've been sealed really come home for the Christian who is living during that time? By revealing the mark like this, Jesus is helping his followers understand what's going on around them. That the reason that they're suffering in their business, the reason why you're not getting work, the reason why you're beginning to experience overt persecution, the reason why you're being rejected, the reason why you're under constant pressure to compromise, is because you have been sealed. You are living faithful to Jesus. And this is the result of living in a world that has decided to worship one in contrast to the other. And this image helps them understand that. And it encourages them to keep being faithful, knowing that they've been sealed, sealed by the Holy Spirit, while others, as it were, have been marked by the worship of the beast, marked by his character come under his influence. And so to top it all off, the vision of these beasts is capped off with the infamous number 666, which you all wanted for your house number. It's called a human number, as it were, and I don't believe it was meant to be a mystery. Uh, it's, it's, it is a little cryptic, and it is deliberately cloaked, but it's not really a mystery. It reaches back to the beastiest beast of them all, Nero himself. It's really just taking Nero's name, and you know how a lot of times people had... Uh, well, we even do that today, where each letter has a number representation. In Hebrew, it's Nero Caesar, 666. And it wasn't really meant to be hidden, but Christians could understand, while Nero was long dead, he stood at the head of the line of the, of the emperors who really began to wage war against the Christians. And if you know a bit of Nero's story, you know just how beastly he really was. Jesus wants people to know that what they're dealing with now in the current emperor is really the same spirit as Nero himself. You see, when the people had received this letter, a lot of them hadn't yet experienced overt um, bloodshed, as it were. We know that from the earlier, earlier in the Revelation. And so Jesus is preparing them, helping them to understand what they're going to be experiencing. Well, how is this relevant to my life? I, I know some of you are thinking, great, I should have slept in today. Some of you are thinking, I came here to hear an encouraging word about my marriage. And I learned about two beasts. And, okay, I'll stop the comment right there. Because there was a joke coming and I shouldn't do that. Okay, so what do we do with this, right? Like, how does this apply to our lives? Like, how are we going to leave today and think that was uplifting or encouraging or challenging? Well, I took some extra time to explain what was going on in the original context of Revelation 13. Because I know how confusing this has been. For some of us. Uh, I don't believe it was meant to be confusing. I don't think it held a lot of mystery, maybe no mystery at all, for the original Christians who received this vision. You see, the world they were living in, they could look around and see images of Caesar, images of other gods, everywhere they looked. They knew good and well who the beast was. They lived under the shadow of dragon-manipulated politics and religion every day of their lives. They felt the pressure to compromise, the conflict that was raging and growing every moment they were awake. And Jesus gives them this vision, this powerful vision with these powerful images to help them understand, to pull back the curtain so that they can really see what's going on around them, so that they can make sense of the pressure that they're experiencing to compromise and to help them endure with faithfulness as loyal followers of the Lamb. 
He wants them to see the conflict for what it really is. The dragon's war for the worship of the world. You saw how it was all about worship when we read through that? When we read about the two beasts, worship was the dominant theme. Everyone is worshiping someone. And that's just true. Everyone worships. It's just a question of who they're going to worship. The two beasts of emperor and emperor cult were the dominant institutions that the dragon was using to wage his war against God's people in the Roman province of Asia back in the first century. And we've seen these beasts rise again and again through history. The dragon will continue to use them whenever they work. But the point? The devil wants to get people to worship something else. Anything else. Someone else. Instead of worshiping Jesus. Or at least he'd love it if they just worshipped other things alongside Jesus. You see, the devil doesn't mind if you worship Jesus, just as long as you're not worshiping only Jesus. That exclusive loyal thing, that really ticks him off. But if he can get you to mix Jesus in with a few other allegiances, then he's perfectly happy with that. But when we look behind the beasts of Revelation, we see a dragon pulling the strings. That ancient serpent that we've already had clearly identified in chapter 12. The devil who leads the whole world astray and now has, is on this, this program of, of, of waging war against the church. But here's the question for us this morning. Are the twin beasts of state and religion the only two henchmen on the dragon's payroll? No, they're not. Like I said, he'll use them when they work. But his goal? It's worship. This is a worship war. And the dragon carries, cares very little for how it's done, as long as people worship something or something other than Jesus alone. He wants to see us compromised. He wants to see the church mixed up. He wants to see people worshiping after anything other than the one who will bring them life. Jesus himself. So the question I had to ask myself as I wrestled through this passage was, what are the beasts that Satan is currently using today? What are the beasts that he might be using today to challenge us to mix up our worship? Well, after some prayer and reflection, I'd like to suggest two of them. First, he uses the beast of comfort. And I looked, and I saw a beast rising up from the couch. And he had in his right hand a beverage filled with all the good things that everyone was striving for. He pat upon his sculpted head a pair of expensive sunglasses, and he smelled faintly of money. And he went forth in style, and the whole world raved after him, longing to look like him, longing to be just like him. And wherever he went, he cried out in the voice, like a Kardashian, Come to me, and take your ease. Don't do anything that doesn't feel good to you. Don't strain yourself. You deserve everything good. And the world fell to their knees and worshipped him. Now, maybe you don't give a rip for the Kardashians. And you haven't really bought into the celebrity culture of our times. But I want you to hear this clearly. Every one of us lives under the cultural power of the beast of comfort. 
we're told every time we turn around, by every marketer out there, every institution that we're part of, by lots of our friends, that we deserve comfort. We're set up to pursue comfort, to serve our own needs, to make life better for ourselves in any way that we can. We're, we're told consistently to put our desires ahead of others' needs because we need it too. And we do. We're encouraged to evaluate everything on the basis of how it's going to affect our comfort. We're padded, we're massaged, we're wooed by every trick in the book, all designed to keep us comfortable. Well, I want you to hear me very clearly. The devil uses his beast of comfort to keep us from following Jesus wholeheartedly. To keep us from accepting the difficult claims of the gospel. To lull us into believing a soft version of Christianity, a version that never really demands anything from us, never really expects anything, certainly would never ask us to sacrifice. Why? Because if the dragon can keep us worshipping the beast of comfort, he's got us beat. Better yet, if he can mix that beast of comfort into our worship of Jesus, even better. We'll end up thinking that we're following the Jesus of the cross when we're really only worshipping the buddy Christ. A Jesus who never calls us into danger, never calls us to serve, well, at least not in any way that's really going to put you out. Never shoves us off the couch of our own personal comfort. Do you find this uncomfortable? Because I do. I just want to let you know. What's at stake when we worship the beast of comfort? I think the very gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let them take up their couch, cross, and follow me. Following Jesus is the very antithesis of comfort. But if Christians buy into a mix of Jesus and comfort, then we have fallen so far from true Christianity that we won't be in any danger of the dragon's leadership. In fact, I think he'll leave us well enough alone. Well, I've got some questions for us. Questions for me. Two of them. What's your greatest comfort temptation? Maybe it's social. Maybe the idea that I should feel comfortable in my relationships. Maybe maybe that's it. That somehow I bought into a version of Christianity that says, surely I should never feel uncomfortable in my relationships. Not around this following of Jesus thing. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's physical. That at the end of the day, if anything gets in the way of my physical comfort, three square meals, whatever, if anything kind of infringes on the things that make me feel good physically, well... I have a tendency to kind of sidestep that. Maybe it's financial. The idea that I actually would have to give something up, like I'd actually have to give something financially in such a way that I might not be able to do something else for the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel. That just doesn't sound like the Jesus I follow, and it might not be. So the question I have is, what is it? Maybe it's those three areas. Maybe it's other areas. But what is it for you? What is your greatest comfort temptation? Mine's social, absolutely. I I don't want anyone to not like me. Because I'm a likable guy, darn it. And so I don't like it. I don't like it when following Jesus might infringe upon, you know, 
my relationships. I feel that temptation. What temptation do you struggle with? And then the second question that goes along with that is, well, what action? What action is Jesus calling you to take so that you can despise the beast of comfort and fully worship Jesus? Is the action Jesus is calling you to take, is is he calling you to serve rather than be served? Some of you in here, now here's my marriage connection. You were coming here today to hope to be challenged or encouraged what marriage here it is. Some of you have wanted to be served in your marriage for so long, you forget that God has called you to serve. So maybe that's it. Maybe it's time for you to serve rather than expect to be served. Maybe God is challenging you to take action around your finances, to actually make a deliberate choice to give sacrificially to the poor, to missions, even to the church. Maybe God is calling you to take action. Jesus is asking you to take action where it's time for you to speak up when it's been so easy for you to stay quiet. I don't know what it is. Whether it's going where you'd rather not go, loving who you'd rather not love. But this beast of comfort must be slayed. The only way it does that, the only way we can do that is through worshiping Jesus with all of our hearts. Well, that's the first beast that I feel like as I prayerfully have thought and identified what is it in my life, what is it in our culture that tries to mix up and confuse us, that's one of them. But the second one is also powerful. It's the beast of individualism. And again, I looked and there rose from the dust a beast like no other, standing tall and alone, complete in his own strength. He had upon his head a large Stetson and on his hips a pair of six guns. And all around him were many mirrors speaking to him of his self-sufficiency and assuring him of his personal power. Everyone who saw him was inspired by his image and they followed after him, worshipping him in his sufficiency, longing to be just like him. The beast of individualism is rooted deep in our cultural psyche. We love the idea of the individual. And we aspire to that ideal. Maybe sometimes we expand it out not to just mean a person, but maybe a family or maybe a society or maybe a a way of living that is self-sufficient and complete. And this is very tricky to even talk about because, you see, what I'm not saying here is that individuals don't matter. They do matter. We talk about that all the time. People matter. Every person matters. Every individual matters. But what the beast of individualism does is say that you matter and no one else does. You're all that matters. You're the one who's got to look out for you. You're the one who's in charge. You're the one who gets to decide what's right, what's wrong, how you want to live, what you want to do. You, my friend, are worthy of worship. And don't let anyone tell you differently. That's the voice of the beast. It's a beast that poses as humanity's champion when in fact it creates more monsters than you and I can imagine. Because a society of individualists doesn't care for anyone else can't follow the ways of Jesus and laying down their lives for others. They can't become healers and helpers. In fact, they just kind of vaguely look around with disdain at those around who just aren't as sufficient as they are, even while they're pretending to help them. It's actually more deceiving than that. Uh, Many of us would look at this ideal of the rugged individual and say, I don't want to be that. I mean, that's not me. And yet, we'll turn around and arrange our whole lives around ourselves. 
live essentially what is a self-centered life. Arrange things to suit us perfectly. Avoid anything that would suggest that maybe we aren't the center of the universe. And you can see how this beast of individualism works so well with the beast of comfort. Many who wouldn't aspire to a kind of self-sufficiency that might be set up as this false ideal will still turn around, make themselves the judge and jury of everyone who doesn't agree with them, live a life that is centered around only them. And the dragon uses this beast relentlessly, barrages us with it. Because if he can get people to worship their own image... He's got them locked. And and if he can get us as Christians to mix in worship of ourselves alongside the worship of Jesus, then we're doomed. And we'd never put it that way. We wouldn't fall for something that obvious. But when we evaluate our spiritual journey continually based on how it suits us best, what we like, our preferences, what, you know, what really is my thing and look down on everyone else, When when we judge others who don't match our expectations, when we do anything like that, we bow essentially before the beast of individualism all the while thinking we're worshiping Jesus and the dragon loves that so what's in danger here what's at stake if we worship the beast of individualism well I want to argue that it's the very family that Jesus created the brothers and sisters the church that he's called us into When we worship the beast of individualism, we adopt a false view of Christianity that we can make it on our own, that our truth is greater, that we don't really need each other, not really. And so, I have a couple questions for us related to this one. The first is, do you follow Jesus in the company of others? Now, I'm not talking about just coming to church. You know how passionate I am about corporate worship. You know how significant I believe it is that we gather regularly to sing praises to God, to learn from God's Word, to to, to fellowship with one another in a larger group. I believe it's critical and essential to your life, to our being the church God has called us to be. But we can trick ourselves because we file in here on Sunday morning and say, how do you folks sit down? enjoy some music, listen to a sermon, and leave that we've just traveled with Jesus in the company of others. And we can miss out on what God is really calling us to do. And furthermore, the beast of individualism can stay firmly in place. Do you actually follow Jesus in the company of others? Do you actually, are you getting shoulder to shoulder with one another and serving others in the name of Jesus? Are you opening up scripture together and learning together? Are you praying for one another? Are there people in your life who can actually challenge your individualism? Are there people in your life who can actually call you out of your comfort zone? Or have you managed to eliminate all of them? Because I try to do that. Unless we travel in the company of others, committed to one another, the beast of individualism will stay firmly in place. So, my second question is, what action do you need to take to slay this beast and live exclusively loyal to Jesus? What is it? What do you need to do to actually step into the company of others? Maybe you do need to join a connect group. 
Maybe you need to call that friend and say, you know what? I need to meet more regular. I just need to have someone that I can talk to regularly about my life in Christ and what I'm hearing, the challenges. And I want you to speak into my life. I'm giving you permission to point out some of the areas in my life that have gone off the rails. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's a few of us joining together to pray regularly for our families, for some of the challenges we face for our church. I don't know what it is, but I know that each one of us can take an action, if we're not taking one already, to join the company of others so that we can't inadvertently mix in to our worship of Jesus, the worship of the beast of individualism. The question is, who will we worship? That's the driving question behind Revelation 13. It's the driving question behind everything in our lives, in our church, in our families. We're in the middle of a worship war. And that's what this incredible vision shows us. Because remember, the devil doesn't care if we worship Jesus as long as we don't worship only Jesus. And so, with this pulling back of the curtain, Jesus is showing us that the devil, the dragon, is doing whatever he can to distract us, whatever he can to mix us up, whatever he can do to take our eyes off Jesus only. And so how do we wage that war? By worshiping Jesus. By responding to who he is. By letting him shine his light into our lives. To call us to exclusive loyalty to him. And reveal in our lives the various beasts that the dragon might be using to distract us and win us over. Maybe it's these two beasts. Maybe it's other ones. God will reveal that as we look fully at Jesus. Worshiping him alone. Saying, Jesus, whatever it takes. I want to be exclusively loyal to you, even if that causes trouble in my life. Because it will. That's who Jesus is calling us to be and to do as a church. Back in the, back in the day, the dragon was using the Roman emperor. Was using the emperor cult. That, I think, was a real challenge for those folks. And for today, for us, it's different. But all of us together are being called to worship Jesus. To follow him. Wherever you're at today, maybe you're already a follower of Jesus, and today you've heard a message that challenges you to evaluate the ways in which you have allowed some other things to be mixed in. Maybe you haven't decided to follow Jesus yet. Maybe you're just exploring. And what you've heard this morning is a challenge to evaluate who you are going to worship, who you are going to follow. Because each one of us needs to answer this question. And we answer it with our lives. In response to today's message, we are going to worship. So the team is going to come and lead us in a song as we close today. Let me pray as they come. Jesus, you are worthy of our worship. And so today, we ask that you would reveal to us ways that we have lost or forgotten or missed what you are calling us to do and be. If there's anything in our lives, Lord Jesus, that you're asking us to turn away from, I pray that you would reveal that to us now, even as we worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.